you're in the right place if you've already had enough of doom and gloom. This is not an event that's going to talk about the size of the problem. We all understand that climate change is an enormous scale problem. What we want to know is how to get everyone on board. And we have four experts who have chosen to answer that question using rather different pathways. And I think you're going to enjoy all four of those pathways this evening. So I'm going to ask our first speaker, Professor Laura Anadon, if I'm saying that properly, to please begin. Thank you very much. Uh, and I'll start with contradicting a little bit our uh, the chair of the panel. Uh, I will talk a little bit about the doom and gloom first, just because I actually think it's very useful to start with uh, some of the new things, some of the biggest things that we have learned recently about the problem. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm an engineer economist working on policy. Um, and I've done most of my work on the role of domestic government policy on climate change mitigation. Uh, and today I'll try to give you some sense of why it is an essential tool and why uh, the devil is in the details, why policy design matters. So on the doom and gloom, again, key trends and facts, I will do this very, very quickly so I will not completely contradict you. Uh, temperature, uh, the global average temperature has already increased by 1.1 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial level. And those of you who, like me, live in Cambridge, you might have noticed that in addition to the global uh, average temperature highs, in July we had the highest uh, temperature here in Cambridge in the UK. Um, second, of course, this temperature increase is not uniform, and we have the largest warmings in West Antarctic and, um, and the Arctic ice sheets. And of course, what this means is that in Greenland, for example, warming is double the global average. And of course, this has implications for uh, various things, most importantly, ice and ice melting. Um, some of these, the things that, again, even after having worked on this for the past 12 years uh, was startling to me uh, was how quickly Arctic sea ice has been melting. And again, many of you will have seen these pictures. I had also grown up almost seeing these pictures. Uh, but what we are seeing now is that we have a trend that is so compelling. Uh, we have seen that over the past 40 years, we have lost uh, around 40% of Arctic sea ice coverage, uh, about 12% decrease per decade. Of course, when you have ice melting, you have sea level rise, and this is accelerating. Uh, this is a trend, uh, and even though uh, on average uh, over the past 100 years or so it's been around uh, 1.4 millimeters per year, it's accelerating. So if we look at the last nine years, the rate of sea level rise has increased to 5.5 millimeters per year. This is both because of the melting and because of the thermal expansion of the ocean. And then other impacts, and this will be the last slide on impacts uh, at this 1.1 degree Celsius increase. Uh, serious harm is already a reality. Around the world, we are seeing variously increases in all of these things. I'm not going to read them. All of them are possibly linked to climate change by theory models and fingerprints. And the scariest thing, of course, is that many of them, most of them are worse than predicted just 10 years ago. So if anything, we are under predicting the damage. So stop about you know, why this is such a big problem, but I do think it really shapes uh, 
understanding these uh, most recent uh, trends really shapes uh, shoe-shaped policy action. So what are the causes and characteristics of the problem? Of course, uh, we have seen that uh, most of the greenhouse gas emissions come from um, human activities uh, driven by increases in population and prosperity since the 1850s. And these increases in population and prosperity have led to increases in CO2 emissions uh, and energy use by a factor of 20. About three quarters of them are from the burning of fossil fuels in power industry, transport and buildings. And this is this area, the energy sector is what I've been doing most of my research on. Um, and again, just final thing, coal, oil and natural gas supply around 80% of energy consumption across the world and about two thirds of power. And this is in spite of the fact that we have already been putting in place a lot of policies. I'll, I'll give you some examples. But to turn from the bad news to the good news, not everything is bad news. There have been really very positive uh, developments in energy technology innovation. I'll give you some examples. Uh, here you might not be able to read this, but what you see is a big a uh, uh, downward trend in the uh, cost of solar panels. This is in logarithmic terms, so this is a really big decrease. Over the past 10 years, the cost of solar panels have come down by 82%. And when we think about the decrease in the cost of solar panels over, since their first commercial application in 1957, the cost has come down by 15,000. For, uh, for onshore wind, when we look at the past 10 years, the cost has come down by 42%. Uh, um, even if we go back in time even more, this goes back to the 70s, the cost has down, come down much more significantly. And what I want you to see here, again, you cannot read the numbers. Here in, in blue we have the historical numbers, these are projections. And what you have here in red is what experts predicted at different points in time. These are experts who really know about the technology uh, in terms of how quickly the cost would come down. And consistently in these technologies, uh, the rate of innovation, the rate of technologies uh, coming down in price have been underestimated. We have similar things for lithium-ion batteries. This is just going back eight years. The cost of lithium-ion batteries, which we are using uh, and will continue to use in electric vehicles and utility-scale storage, has come down by 89% over the past eight years. Again, nobody really predicted this. So these enormous cost reductions we see across a range of energy technologies, and they happen much faster than was predicted by decades even recently. Um, Still, in spite of these really big cost reductions, which as I will mention in a second, were actually not just the result of free market forces, were a result of massive government actions across the world over the past 40, 50, 60 years. Uh, we are still faced with this picture from the IPCC 1.5 report, which shows that for CO2 emissions, this is the historical trend, if you want to uh, have a 50% probability, 50% probability of limiting the temperature increase uh, at 1.5, again, remember we're at 1.1 degrees, we need to be going in this direction. We need to go from about 40 billion tons of CO2 per year today to zero by 2040 to, 20, 2040 to 2055. This will involve massive deployment of current technologies, things we have, but also, and this is really important, new technologies in all sectors. Now, one, one quote that I think is very useful, you can do two things between this, you can say, Complacency, oh, you know, this technology cost reductions will come back, that will uh, save everything, or there's nothing to do, there's no way that we're going to go from this to this. Uh, I think the, the way I see this graph, which is really scary, is 
instilling urgency in what we do. So what is the role of governments? We have a great panel that is going to talk about a lot of things. I'll talk about the role of governments. And here again, when we think about these cost reductions that I talked about, this is what we know. We know from research that my group and many other groups have done over the past uh, you know, 20, 30 years that government policy, domestic government policy in a range of countries over time for different technologies has played a critical role in energy technology innovation. Uh, and one way, this is a very simplistic way of putting this, is that a lot of these technologies we have onshore and offshore wind, solid state lighting, lithium ion batteries, solar panels, electric vehicles. It was through a combination of technology push, so R&D, support for technology development, and market pool policies, incentives for the deployment of technologies that are still not yet cost, yet cost effective, really explain uh, to a large extent, of course, then you know, there's also, of course, a private sector initiative, but it's very hard to envision or to understand those cost reductions without these massive policies. And let, let me give you some examples of the extent to which there is already a lot of policy action that has enabled those. Here we have a graph uh, from the uh, International Renewable Energy Agency where, we, where it's, we see that over time, since 2004, uh, with the number of countries that have put in place financial and fiscal incentives for renewables, here we are in the 100s of countries. Here again, another graph uh, that shows how many countries have put in place feeding tariffs or other uh, options for renewables. So again, you know, remember those last 10 years, 82% cost reductions. We've had all of this support. And then, um, I've just talked about market pool policies. There's been a huge amount of investment in energy research and development, but again, in a lot of the research that I and others have done, uh, here we have global in OECD countries, starting in the 70s, this is the bump in energy research um, that countries around the world put in place during the oil crisis in the 70s. Uh, so we've seen that there's been a lot of investments, we're reaching the level from the oil crisis, but it's not nearly enough given some the, the cost from uh, climate change. So I and many others have talked about how we need to really go up a lot here. Now just mention quickly, uh, those were data points or information from OECD countries. China has been significantly increasing their investments in energy R&D, and as a percentage of GDP, they're making uh, the largest investments. Uh, interestingly, or, or sadly, these investments are not even keeping up with GDP. So let me now um, saying a little bit about how we, there is a lot of policy action on the technology push, and the R&D, and on the market pool, this sort of renewables uh, incentives. There's a few things. Um, that we know, so we need domestic policy actions and we need ma very expanded domestic policy action to, uh, to turn the corner in those emissions. Uh, these are just some of the things that we need. We need ambitious and clear goals, additional regulations and incentives for energy efficiency, carbon prices and other deployment incentives to demonstrate new business models. We need increased R&D investments, information about the climate impacts of different products so that we consumers can make informed decisions as well as infrastructure investments. But we also know that some of these policies, because now we've analyzed a lot of these things, have or can have, depending on how you design them, short-term costs, especially for the most vulnerable. So it's no longer okay to just say, we can do everything and everybody is going to win in the short or long term. So we not, but we are learning about how to do this. Uh, we also know that public support for action can be shaped by these co-benefits, by things that come out of having more renewables, for example, that are not just, even though it's of course not just, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. 
So to enable a just transition, policy de design needs to protect the vulnerable and to use these co-benefits. Otherwise, uh, if we don't have a fair transition, uh, it will be impossible to continue ratcheting up efforts. Uh, I think I'm getting, uh, I, I'm running out of time, so I, I, I'll be happy to talk about uh, all of the new evidence that we have about how to make these policies work for those that are most vulnerable and also maintain political support. And finally, just since we are here in the UK, um, just wanted to mention that, um, that for the first time over the past three months, the UK has had more electricity from renewables than for, from fossil fuels. Again, due to government policy. There's a lot of research here that has um, shown this. And uh, to move away from this uh, projected four degree uh, increase in global temperatures in 2100, uh, there are, we have a lot more tools. We know that government policies have already made possible key technologies. We need to make possible technologies for uh, decarbonizing shipping, uh, for doing more on energy storage, uh, air transport, and so forth. And I think the, the last positive thing is that really the biggest uncertainty in determining, determining what emissions we have um, is what we actually decide to do. So we do have agency in this problem. We know there are, there are policies that have really made, uh, enabled a lot of the key ingredients, and we just need to um, do more. Thank you very much. So the design of this evening is 10-minute presentations. So we're going to have lots of time to engage directly. Please start writing down your questions. I'm sure you have no questions for somebody who understands the role of government in climate change. <laughs> if you do, please prepare them. After the last speaker, we'll go into an open questioning session. Now I'd like to introduce Hugh Warwick, um, who is an ecologist. It's always good to have an engineer, economist, <laughs> ecologist. I don't know if everyone else is going to start with E. Hugh, one of Hugh's uh, plaudits, which I have to read out because I think is wonderful, is that he's probably unique for having accolades on his first book, both from Jeanette Winter Winterson and Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> Please explain. <laughs> Will that be part of my 10 minutes? No. OK, so um, I, there is a thing. Um, I, I, I have a passion for, for hedgehogs. And um, you may have passed uh, on your way in leaflets about hedgehogs. I didn't do a slideshow because I assumed you all know what a hedgehog was, but then you know, I, uh, there might have been economists and engineers in the audience, and you might not have been doing much natural history. Um, so uh, I, I, have, I wrote a book about hedgehogs and had the, the great delight of getting a review uh, from, from Anne Whittacombe, uh, complete with the evidence that she'd not read the book. Um, <laughs> because she actually said, uh, she, she wrote nice things about the book, but the only thing I mentioned about her in the book is, one, she clearly loves hedgehogs, and two, the only time I'd met her before that was when a friend of mine had stuck a custard pie in her face after she'd been particularly racist and homophobic. Um, and I happened to be there loitering with my camera in a bookshop and, um, and sold the photograph to every newspaper. But luckily she hadn't read the book, so it was okay. Jeanette Winston, um, I got a kiss, so therefore I have not washed this cheek since then. So, um, so no slideshow, but uh, you know what a hedgehog is. And what I wanted to do was to broaden things out a little bit and move away from just the idea of climate science uh, through to radical action. And actually, if there were more horsemen of the apocalypse than just uh, climate change. And um, I'm going to look at the big issue of, of 
biodiversity and bioabundance loss, in particular the importance of bioabundance, and then explain why hedgehogs are probably the most important creature on the planet and have the power vested within them to create a true revolution based on love. Um, <laughs> it's a tall order, I normally do this in an hour. So, um, biodiversity and bioabundance, I think the problem is we've got a whole bunch of reports, we've got a whole bunch of numbers, we've got a whole bunch of very clever people presenting things in quite a dry way. And if we look at other movements which have been particularly successful in mobilizing their base, um, and, and many of them maybe not necessarily uh, uh, in our audience now, but you know, Trump supporters and UKIPers and the like like that, uh, they have done so by kicking into the emotion. We really need, if we're to generate any sort of radical action, uh, yes, I'm sure government policy needs to be part of it, but that will be driven by people's emotion, by people's reaction to these things. And we need to find a way of transforming this quite hard and dry stuff into stuff that people really feel. And I mean, the data for biodiversity loss is, is, is well rehearsed, whether the figure is 100 times or 1,000 times background extinction um, is a moot point. I thought that the, the transformation of the idea of this being the sixth uh, great extinction into the, the first uh, global extermination was quite a good shifting of perspective as well. This is not an accidental thing happening just while we're sitting around being benign. This is something which we are actively engaged in doing. Uh, but biodiversity loss is one part of the problem. Bioabundance is something we tend to ignore. I was horrified with the figures which you may well know of. Bio, the biomass of mammals on this planet, the biomass of mammals on this planet, over 95% of the biomass of mammals on this planet comes in the form of people and livestock. 4.2% of the biomass of mammals on this planet is wildlife. It's the hedgehogs through to the humpback whales. It is absolutely everything else. It's probably only 10,000 years ago that that figure was exactly the opposite way around. So those figures worry me. The, the figures for the biodiversity loss, biomass loss in Germany came out a couple of years ago. 27-year study showing that biomass was down 75% in flying insect biomass. This is the food of everything, from, from hedgehogs and bats and birds. Everything needs to have this base to an ecosystem, yet it is being undermined. And we're ignoring it because, because it's too big. We need to find ways of getting absorbed into this, which are going to hold our attention and make us care. Uh, a, a table or a graph is not going to do that. We need to find a way of finding that passion. And um, I think that uh, it was Stephen Jay Gould who, who wrote uh, very uh, uh, powerfully on this. He, he coined a phrase, we will not fight to save what we do not love. Very, very simple idea, but one which I'm sure we can truly understand. We will not fight to save what we do not love. I think it's quite interesting that the um, social media platforms encourage us to like things. I'm um, pretty sure no revolution has ever been born off the back of people liking things. We need to take that step, that brave step, away from being half-hearted and liking something uh, to actually loving. And it, it is a step of bravery, because to do that, is to step into a world where you're acknowledging the pain that will come with the grief from loss, because those things will happen. If you commit yourself to something, if you love something, and you recognize it is fragile and you may lose it, it is something you may back away from. But how do we get people to do that? How do we cross that line from liking to loving? Well, the wildlife and conservation groups, they fully understand this. And they try and seduce us with uh, beautiful images of the charismatic megafauna. And we have uh, David Attenborough uh, intoning with great wisdom behind the most beautiful fit pictures of, 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 a, of a wildlife which doesn't really exist in that particular form. But these are 
very much at a remove. And if we're to engage with people to get them to take radical action, it needs to be much more real, much more connected. I mean, it works to some point. When I was growing up, I had three posters on my bedroom wall. Uh, there was a tiger, there was a breaching humpback wall, and there was a young woman who'd been playing tennis who didn't have any underwear. And um, so, I mean, this was yeah, a, a typical adolescent wildlife hormones. Oh, God. Um, and here I am now studying hedgehogs 30 years later or so. So um, we have this pro How do we go from that sort of level of, of engagement? And um, I had a night out with uh, a, a dear close friend called Nigel. We were nose to nose on a uh, Devon uh, lane. He was busy harvesting slugs along the side of the road. Nigel was a hedgehog. I had by this stage been living alone in a caravan for over a month and was getting quite lonely. And um, been radio tracking hedgehogs, looking at how they survived in the wider environment after release from captivity. And there was a moment when he stopped and he came nose to nose with me and he looked. He looked at me. We made eye contact, and it was a transformative moment for me. Because at that moment, I realized that that relationship, based on science and on reserve and on liking, had broken down. And that I was moving into, you get awkward, it's not very fashionable, but loving wildlife, loving nature. And taking that step is absolutely crucial. Now, we are being encouraged to fall in love with nature because that is the only way we will take radical action but we are being tr that's people are trying to do that with the charismatic megafauna and that i realize is that i'm as likely to get nose to nose with that humpback whale as i am with the tennis girl you know these things aren't going to happen in the end if we are truly lucky we will fall in love with the girl or the boy next door and the hedgehog is the animal equivalent of that it's an animal which, because of its coat of spines, doesn't have a fight or flight response. It doesn't run away. We don't need to chase after it. We don't need to worry about being bitten. If we're calm and we're quiet, we can get nose to nose. But here hangs another problem. Hedgehogs in this country, um, we know with very robust statistics, are down 30% in urban areas since the turn of the century and 50% in rural areas. With less robustness, but with a degree of certainty, I would argue that there's been a population decline of between 90 and 95% in our hedgehogs since the end of the Second World War. These are probably the most important creatures out there because they're the ones that we can truly get close to and they're the ones which can stimulate people to shift away from liking and possibly take that risky big step into loving. And it's a very, very short step from loving hedgehogs, getting nose to nose with hedgehogs, and being out on the streets with Extinction Rebellion. Trust me, it really is a very short step. So thank you very much. Thank you. That is quite a hard act to follow, yeah. but I'm pretty convinced that Lola Perrin is the right person to follow. I'm afraid... Do I have to? Yes, I'm afraid you do. Uh, Lola comes from a performance and music background. Uh, there's so many interesting things that I'd like her to explain <laughs> that rather particular combination. Uh, okay, so I am a composer and a pianist, and um, I've been engaged in climate activism since about 2011. Um, and so what, I, what I've been doing as a composer and a pianist is writing piano suites and publishing them. And then what happened in... In 2011, I saw a particular image, here we go, by Isaac Cordell. 
and the image on the left, um, politicians studying global warming. And it's one of those light bulb moments um, where I just made up my mind at that point. I would only engage with climate issues until they were all solved. Um, <laughs> so a very small task I set myself. Um, I just couldn't bear the fact that these politicians are you know, almost up to their foreheads and they're still talking. Um, so one thing led to another. I wrote several compositions. And then it led to this, which I wrote in about 2014, 2015, called Significantus. And that is a piano suite, which I started touring around the UK. And it was all about climate uh, writings. I got uh, it's inspired by different climate writings, by scientists. And I had a 40-minute silence in this piano suite. So I would invite different experts to come and join me on stage. I'd play the pieces. They'd talk for 15 minutes. And then they would engage the audience in a genuine conversation, not a Q&A. And so that way, I was helping to break the silence about climate change in ordinary spaces. Because at that time, not many people were talking about climate change. This is, uh, it led to the formation of an initiative called Climate Keys, because what happened was a climatologist came and stayed with me. I'm trying to compete with you, Mr. Hugh, so funny. Uh, a climatologist came to my house and I broke two toes on her suitcase. That's funny for me. Anyway, so I had nothing to do for two weeks. My doctor said I had to sit with my foot up, so I had nothing to do. So I wrote to about 900 pianists around the world, and I said, look, I'm engaged in climate issues. Why don't you do the same? And 100 wrote back and said, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. So we made this initiative called Climate Keys, and to date, we've had 70 concerts in 13 countries. There's a no-fly policy. And all, lots of composers are involved in this, and we've helped to make many, many conversations about climate change. And it goes into the press, it gets into radio, so we've done quite a lot of work on breaking the silence between us. So this is a kind of typical concert. That's Asad Raymond from Director of War and Want, Me on the Piano. So we're here. I, I've been doing this work since uh, about, you know, towards that red dot in the middle. Um, and as we can see, the emissions keep going up, you know? I mean, what are we supposed to do about this? That gray line on the top, if we just carry on doing what we're doing now, we're going to five degrees. I mean, what are we gonna do? We have to work very, very hard to go to that, that purple line, which will push, push everything down, push the emissions down, so we can keep to the 1.5 uh, target of the Paris Agreement. So this is my answer, rebel for life. I don't feel like I'm kind of in a cult, <laughs> but I do feel that uh, feeding my existing activism through the lens of Extinction Rebellion has really helped me because now I've got a much wider base and I can do much bigger projects than I was able to do before. So now this is an example. I, I, I'm in the middle of touring something called End Climate Chaos. I just ring up an Extinction Rebellion group. And before I know it, I've got a beautiful church, got a great speaker, I've got all the support. And then in the audience, we have people's assemblies. So if I was doing a Climate Keys concert here, I would be dividing everybody into groups of six or eight, and we'd all be just debating one question, and then we'd come back together at the end, we'd have one speaker from each group, and we'd have a general talk, and we'd bring the best ideas forward from each group into a group discussion. It's a very, very exciting premise. So getting back to like the street, this is from International Rebellion 1, which took place in the spring, and as you have it, you know, you get asked to be on Turkish TV, so that's I was live on Turkish TV, I'm responsible for that shot. Because <laughs> I, I saw this happening in Oxford Circus, so I ran up to the top of H&M, 
and I took that picture, which has been syndicated everywhere. Not that I got any money for it. Right, so I'm a composer, and I end up on World at One talking about climate change. I find that quite, quite unusual. Um, this is one thing about um, being in Extinction Rebellion. It gives you such a platform to, to talk about your feelings and you know, discuss with a wider audience what you think is going on. Right, so after Rebellion, I decided I would try and, and do a very large-scale project. Um, and I, I became aware that um, there's so much oil money in our cultural institutions. And BP was everywhere. They were um, advertising Carmen. And uh, we, we picked up on this because Carmen is a, a wonderful opera. And the heroine seemed to be saying something to us about how these fossil fuel companies are just colluding. You know, they, they, they get together and they greenwash. They, they say that they're reducing greenhouse emissions there. That's in their, uh, you know, the oil and, and gas climate initiative claim that, you know, there's 12 members of the fossil fuel industry, they claim that they are actually reducing greenhouse emissions. But if you look at the business plans of these fossil fuel companies, they're all increasing drilling. So what we did was we got together a whole group of artists and designers, and we created the character Carmen. We made her dress to look like an oil slick. We had uh, various members of Extinction Rebellion uh, coming with us to declare uh, these oil companies as crime scenes. Then you can see the dress as the oil slick. And then I had my uh, air raid siren to sound the alarm. And we made speeches at the doors. This is in a five-hour procession through London. Made speeches at the doors of the fossil fuel companies, imploring them to uh, st stop doing business as usual and come out of the building and talk to us. And then we have Ben, who's actually in the audience, providing music for us. And we were delivering a book to the, each, um, each fossil fuel company. And what happened, we've got a bit of a film here to show you, just a tiny bit of a film. But what they did was they kind of shut the door on us. So you get the idea. Let's see if I can get back into the PowerPoint. Um, what happened from that was we got into media all around the world. You know, we got into New York Times. We got onto right. Democracy Now. Um, I'm, I just feel that there's definitely a role for the artist in this. Because what we can do, it's what Hugh was talking about. We can really connect with people's emotions. We can get onto the streets in these extravagant processions and bring the issues to the people. So uh, this is an example of how a line from that play, written by April DeAngelis, by the way, got into the Financial Times just last week. So that's the legacy. The legacy continues from our play, which is about six months old. Right, I'm almost out of time. Just very, very quickly, 
we recently went to the Global Aviation Festival in Islington. There were 400 speakers, and not one of them was talking about emissions. So we looked through. We couldn't find. <laughs> Growth, yeah, four. Development, nine. Loyalty, 13. OK, so this is business as usual in the aviation sector. That's how it makes me feel. I'm sorry, I cannot believe it. I cannot believe we had this three-day conference and they weren't going to discuss emissions or climate change. We actually, you can ask me about it when I'm on the panel. It was so exciting. We had an intervention and we changed the conversation. So I'd like to continue that. If you want to ask me, I'll talk about that when I'm on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems that enthusiasm is part of the answer. Uh, as we've already seen a few times, and I'm going to ask Matthew Denny to take up that challenge of being equally enthusiastic, professor of geography and award-winning documentary filmmaker. <coughs> Okay, uh, well, uh, thank you very much for uh, inviting me. Um, most of my work actually is on um, urban <coughs> biodiversity. I'm really an urbanist. Um, but I wanted to say a few things about the uh, climate change uh, question. And there are three, three things I wanted to briefly mention, and then I think we're going to move to a um, panel um, discussion. Firstly, the question of uh, models and prediction which is featured in some of the earlier presentations. Secondly, I want to say something about the Anthropocene, this word that has begun to creep into everyday usage, and whether that's a helpful or unhelpful um, idea. And then um, finally, I want to say something about the, the causes of climate change, or at least disputes about what the causes um, might be. So the, the first issue then is of uh, models and prediction. And in a way, our, our faith in science rests very much on its ability to um, predict events. And a lot of the discussion about climate change science is about its, uh, its, its veracity, if you like, in the face of environmental change. And um, early this year, um, a Tokyo-based um, research team in the journal Nature uh, published a, a prediction that there would be a, a polar vortex sweeping through North America caused by the loss of Arctic sea ice. And just a few days after the publication of this article, this meteorological phenomenon actually happened where, with severe weather warm, uh, warnings in Chicago and the Midwest and so on. And this really struck me as a very powerful example of predictive um, science in action. But a lot of the um, political debate around climate change has hinged on these areas, if you like, of scientific contestation about the, the relative contributions of um, anthropogenic sources of climate change. And I think there's been a, a real tension between different kinds of scepticism, because um, science has to advance through rigorous forms of scepticism, skepti sometimes referred to as um, peer review 
of scientific research before it's actually um, published. But the very idea of um, scepticism in itself has filtered through into a very complex uh, political um, situation where you have what you could describe as um, orchestrated non-scientific scepticism, which is designed to confuse people. It's designed to undermine rigorous scientific work. So one important question for me is how, in terms of the, if you like, public culture and public knowledge about science, how do we build a better grasp of science so that we can differentiate between rigorous science in the sense that it's actually published and looked at by teams and panels of experts, and this, if you like, this noise of orchestrated scepticism that is deliberately designed to, uh, to confuse us and to thwart possibilities for radical um, uh, political action or radical policies. The second uh, point I wanted to touch on um, concerns the, the Anthropocene, this interesting term that is now uh, very widely used um, and referred to. And I think the key reason why the term Anthropocene is interesting to, to consider is it very explicitly in terms of um, deep time or geological history, um, it, it really focuses on this distinction between what's called um, gradualism by many earth scientists and catastrophism. And really this difference between the idea that um, environmental changes in earth history happen very slowly over long periods of time or happen extremely suddenly and quickly. And one of the important things about the Anthropocene debate is the recognition that glo global environmental change can actually happen very, very fast within human uh, uh, life histories, within human lifespans. And that, of course, is a very um, frightening point to recognize. And it's why, from the earlier presentations, this sense of data from recent years points to an accelerating rate of change, and it leans very much towards this catastrophism, sorry, I can't say that word, catastrophism um, in relation to uh, deep time and earth science. Now, in terms of um, debates within uh, the Anthropocene, um, scientists um, have been looking for what they call a golden spike in terms of a specific set of evidence that points towards a change in the geological um, uh, time periods into a recognized period known as the Anthropocene. And these debates about when we can say that we've moved into the Anthropocene are in themselves, I think, very interesting. Most, most scientists tend to focus on around the year uh, the 1945 as what they call the golden spike and in particular to do with um, uh, nuclear radiation released by atomic bombs, uh, but also for other um, uh, environmental scientists, um, the massive increase in the use of resources in the post-war period, sometimes referred to as the Great um, Acceleration. But there is actually another interesting starting point referred to by some Earth scientists what they call the, the Orbis Spike of 1610. And this has to do with the discovery of the New World and genocide in the Americas 
leading to the large-scale abandonment of cultivated land and the regrowth of forests. And there's an interesting debate here that what's known as the, the Little Ice Age and this temporary cooling in temperatures was actually related to the violence of the discovery of the new world. And in this sense, for Earth scientists, the so-called golden spike links very directly to one of the most violent episodes uh, in human history. But there are yet more explanations about this historical periodization, which I think is interesting. Another explanation focuses on technological innovations. So Andreas Mahn, this very interesting writer with the book Fossil Capital, refers to 1784 and the invention of the steam engine and the massive increase in the use of uh, carbon within the energy needs for modern societies, so a technological focus. Yet another influential um, scholar, um, Jason Moore, um, refers to the Capitolocene, rather the Anthropocene, and the rise of global capitalism as the fundamental factor behind the movement towards the Anthropocene. And then there are yet further scholars who actually reject the term Anthropocene altogether because they consider that this term is so dominated by the earth sciences and the geological sciences that human history doesn't play a significant role in the explanation. So what I'm suggesting there then is that we have this new term, the Anthropocene, but very interesting and I think illuminating debates about what this word means and how it helps to explain why we are where we are in the contemporary world. So um, finally then, um, just a few comments in terms of the, uh, the cause of climate change. For some writers, particularly uh, um, uh, in terms of fiction, there's a sense that um, climate change is really a, a crisis of culture, a crisis of the imagination. And implicitly then, a sense that we can somehow think our way out of this crisis, if only we had the power of the imagination to do so, to imagine different worlds. And when we think of um, science fiction literature, there's an interesting question here that a lot of science, science fiction literature is heavily dystopian. These are destroyed um, future worlds. But the possibility that there could be a, um, an optimistic, if you like, counter dystopian science fiction imaginary to try and imagine new and, and radically different worlds in the future. Because if we can't imagine different worlds, how can we possibly create them? So there's this question then of the, if you like, a failure of the cultural imagination. Another explanation for climate change, and this is really very widespread, is that the, the cause of climate change is humankind, an undifferentiated sense of people as the cause. Now, for historians, this is tricky because if we want to develop a more nuanced historical, historical explanation, we don't just refer to people as a general category. We need to think about which people and how people act, why people act in a, further way, in a certain way, and how do we understand historical agency and his historical change. But certainly, in quite a lot of the environmental literature, there's been this 
sense of an undifferentiated we, or that we as individuals need to change our consumer behaviour, buy different products, for example, as if that was enough to really get to grips with such a hugely complex and dangerous problem. And then there are other more radical explanations which are very sceptical of all of the contemporary political narratives and are trying to develop um, completely different understandings of where we got to our current situation. And in particular, linking, I think, with some of the activities of Extinction Rebellion and other movements, trying to think about radical um, social and political change rather than uh, piecemeal behavioral or technological um, interventions. And of course, when we think about uh, the geological sciences, there's a lot of interest in um, geoengineering and um, plans to directly alter the climate through vast technological devices and so on. And this, I think, this, if you like, geoengineering imagination is very much pitted against calls for fundamental um, social and political change. So there isn't a consensus at all about how we um, respond to the current um, situation that we're in. So just to, to conclude then, there is perhaps um, a problem then that, that we face in terms of how to motivate people. And I was interested in the earlier presentation about the, if you like, the, the power of moving beyond liking to loving in terms of what that might mean. And also this question of the vastness of the problem and how that can engender a sense of inaction. How do we square that circle, if you like, between vastness and um, action? Um, I mentioned at the start of my presentation about science, and there's an expression, citizen science, which is quite interesting, and the sense of how we enrich public culture so that everyone is interested in science and has the, uh, the tools and the knowledge to have access to scientific papers, many of which are now um, published um, uh, open access is the expression, so that anybody can read them. And I have to say, I do like some of these science journalism articles where there's a link to the, the paper and you can go and actually read the paper that the article is based on. Why not? And there have been so many fascinating recent articles. We heard about this article in, in Germany that came out showing this <coughs> massive fall in terms of invertebrate biodiversity across Germany measured in nature reserves. This wasn't areas that have been obviously changed, but there's something huge going on in terms of reductions in biomass. And it's a very readable, very well-structured article that you can go to and you can look at and you can read. So this question then of um, uncertainty and vastness, and I would just um, conclude with a, with a quote, quote from the science um, philosopher Sheila Yazanov, and um, she writes that um, uncertainty has become a threat to, co to collective action, um, the disease that knowledge must cure. And I think that's a, a very important um, uh, statement to bear in mind. So um, thanks very much. Thank you. I'm sure that you have some challenging questions. Who would like to begin the process?
to 
think one of the greatest challenges is that both policy and technology tends to separate problems and seek single answers. And that's why those things are divided. So I, I do worry about the capacity of institutions to answer both of your questions and challenges simultaneously. But it's a really important question. Now, there's somebody with their arm up here that is desperate. <laughs>
enables it and where the impacts on the most vulnerable. But we do have in this, I don't know if you're and production-based counting, we do have a good understanding, or beginning to have a good understanding of what is enabling um, the lifestyles that we have today. Yeah, um, I just, I want to add to that, that um, there's a very, very strong thing called the fossil fuel lobby industry, and they're in, they are intent on governments not listening to this kind of research and making sure that the economic system just carries on and they just ignore because they, they ignore their own advisors. You know, they, they elect, you know, they, they appoint environmental advisors to work these things out, who then bring them the figures and say, yeah, well, we should really include the the emissions that we're enforcing, not you know, from manufacture, from other other parts of the world, we should include them in our carbon budget. And governments no, no, we're not going to do that because they're being paid off by fossil fuel lobbyists. So I mean, um, this is a very political thing as well. It's like the policy might be be there, but the political system has to be also to listen to the policy makers. So in, in our research, we have a three-part model for change, which suggests that the first step to successful change is to have a fear of inaction. And I think Extinction Rebellion is doing a very useful job in that space. And interestingly, if you go back to something like Thomas Piketty's uh, takedown of free market capitalism and the inequity that that generates, the criticism of that book is often based on the second part of the book, where he starts to suggest solutions. And I think Extinction Rebellion have taken a very smart move in saying, no, our job is the first of those three steps. But it would mean that there are two other groups that have to emerge. And I'm just going to call them the post-extinction party and try to be positive. We need a vision of a future that actually works. And I'm going to call the other one the Monday Action Club. We've got to act and we've got to do something different. So I don't think Extinction Rebellion should get into the job of answering those two other questions because it is politically dangerous and muddies waters considerably. How many of you know the global annual subsidy to the coal, oil, and gas industries? Read the IEA report. On average, it's over $500 billion annually of taxpayers' money subsidizes the fuel fossil industry. Subsidy. And they will claim that we should stop subsidizing wind. This is the single biggest perversion of the capital system anywhere, and you should be screaming about it. I can't tell you how angry I am at this rather enormous number. Does anybody want to encourage Thanks. Um, this sort of feeds into the um, capitalism money aspect of it. I've spent quite a lot of time trying to enthuse people about um, making lifestyle choices to, um, to reduce their carbon footprint. And the feedback I've got suggests that they, the one thing that would motivate people more than anything else to um, live more efficiently would be if it saved them money. Um, so uh, for this reason, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in carbon pricing solutions. The, the one that I'm particularly keen on is carbon credit 
but generally things that would um, adjust the economics so that people who were um, uh, burnt a lot of fuel lost out financially and people who were efficient um, benefited. Um, I wondered how, how the panel think how the, the economic, personal economic argument feeds into the overall emotional scheme of things. We must get an economist no, I had it. I had to go over it, but uh, you know that's when I talked about three policies. One was carbon pricing, plus subsidies. But I said plus subsidies because we know that the uh, carbon pricing is not going to be high enough to enable these changes. There is, and it's also one of the areas where we've done a lot of work here, where we see that depending on how the carbon pricing is done, it may um, be uh, more palatable and more beneficial to those that again have a low income. So there's a lot of
where the love for practically is so strong and the only way that it's visible is by the like, visions of the speakers. <laughs> Pigeons are gorgeous too. Mosquitoes, however, uh, they suck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm speaking from a very, very centric point of view in terms of my choice of species. Uh, and the idea of generating radical action through that here, yes, that's what we can choose. And there are other parts of the world, and um, yeah, friends of mine have lived in them, where, yes, you do have uh, rats, pigeons, and, uh, and mosquitoes, which are a company, and it's going to be much harder to do that. But we, we have to take what we can where we've got it. And I'm not an expert in um, policy or economics or engineering, but, but I'm an expert in hedgehogs. So hence the reason I'll use that example. But I'm pretty glad I spoke to one person. <laughs> just, maybe just very, very quick comments on, on uh, nature and aid, for example, in, in the global south, compared to the global north. Um, I think it's a very good point that, that you raised, but there are also very interesting points of intersection, for example, in terms of urban biodiversity and fascination with uh, weeds or spontaneous plants in cities as a way of reading urban history and learning about urban space and also possibilities for nature reserves or water um, that actually don't present a um, health threat to mosquitoes but, uh, because actually you have um, fish and dragonflies and you have a, a particular ecosystem as part of landscape design that avoids some of the, the potential things that you or, or other people might be uh, concerned about as well. Um, I agree that personal change will not be enough, not even close for me to regulate uh, the industry, but any more ideas besides regulating carbon um, emission of fossil fuels, uh, forestry and uh, meat production, um, what else can be done in terms of um, <coughs> government policies? What should we push for? What should we fight for? that will uh, bring the biggest impact. So, well, I mean, gosh, if they, if they talk about that, it'd be brilliant. You know, those three, well, you know, that's pretty good, isn't it? That would go a long way to getting a, a, a handle of this, the rapid rise of the temperature, I should say. Just as a, as a friend of mine um, pointed out, that the biggest problem we have with climate change is that it's the bloody environmentalists who picked it up first as an issue and spending the entire time talking about COVID deaths. Um, and, and, that has distract, and that's given a very easy target to a whole bunch of people. If we base it around health issues, if we base it around job issues, if we base it around a whole host of other things, um, we would have the unions on board. I, I, I always look at, uh, uh, 20 years ago, I would never imagine that we would be, I'd get a sit in the pub, um, kind of an asthma and a smoke down to it. But, but it was, if there's a political will to actually be absolutely draconian and say, no, um, Interesting work being done with conservative Christian groups is finding that actually with the issue of, of uh, high-polluting uh, diesel vehicles, uh, when they're being gently nudged to not burn them, um, it's a case of, well, well, if it was really serious, they'd tell us not to. Uh, however, conservative Christian groups will radically change their behavior if told it is against the law. Um, yeah, just a quick question. Just, just a quick uh, sometimes environmentalists yearn for some sort of um, draconian environmental governance, and I think that's the wrong path to go down. And the evidence suggests that um, democracies are doing a lot better in terms of um, innovative uh, environmental policy. 
but it takes time. If you look at the 7.30. Some people are urging to leave. Thank you for the signal. And I would encourage you, after thanking the panel, to come down and engage more directly and for some of you to run away. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>